and as well uh, the acceptance of the church from the culture. So we've looked at the persecution. We looked at persecution by the culture and then acceptance from the culture. This cultural acceptance, though, brought new challenges and opportunities for the church. So last week we looked at how this new acceptance led to the church needing to clarify its beliefs, which led to four councils that asked or really responded to four major theological questions. Anybody know what those questions centered on? What did those questions center on? Those four major councils that centered on four theological questions. Anybody know what those questions centered on? What was the focus of each of those four? Anybody? Yeah, the nature of Christ. The humanity and divinity of Christ. In that, you're getting into the persons of the Trinity, but primarily all of those discussions of those four early councils, they're looking at the theological question of the humanity and divinity of Christ, the very nature of Christ. So as a result, the church affirmed and confirmed the full humanity and divinity of Christ in one person. Today we're going to move beyond those four councils into the early Middle Ages, up into the great, what they call, schism of the church in 1054, the division of the church into east and west. And while we do this 600-year flyby, we're going to notice some cracks that will begin to lead to the eventual split of the church into east and west. So we're doing a broad overview. What I want to try to do is tie in all of the things that would lead to the church splitting in 1054 A.D., between, uh, splitting into east and west. I want to help just tie in all of these things for you, to all, to, for you all to see the movements of how that led to that point. So I want to look at three major relationships. This is under the intro section in your handout. Three major relationships. Number one, the church and the state. Constantine, as you learned last week, legalized Christianity around 313 with the Edict of Milan. So what happens is you get this tight relationship that develops between church and state that hadn't existed before. Because Christianity was by and large a persecuted religion. And so today we're going to see how the church and the state become bound together in many, many problematic ways that can come from that. Secondly, we're going to look at the church and the world. We see this relationship, we see this relationship through the monastic movement. So we're going to look at the monastic movement. I know that's a big word. We're going to hash that word out and what that monastic movement even entails. So the growth of monasticism during this period said something about how the church understood its place in the world. It said something about how the church understood its place in the world. So we have the church in the world. Third, east and west, this division. In 451, you've got a united Christian church there in Chalcedon. And then 600 years later, you've got a split. How in the world did we get to that point? That's the third relationship that we'll look at. So how do these three relationships lead to the split of the church? Number one, we're starting out with looking at political division of the early Middle Ages. The barbarian invasions of the 4th and 5th centuries dismantled the Roman Empire and sought to establish barbarian kingdoms throughout the Roman Empire. The Huns, living in the north, began to move south, pushing these barbarian tribes into Western Europe. And these tribes, these tribes known as the Ostrogoths, Visigoths, and Anglo-Saxons, or Angles and Saxons, and then later would become Anglo-Saxons, 
are getting pushed down into the Roman Empire. And Rome actually gives them an opportunity to move in. In 410, Rome is sacked by Alaric, the Visigoth. This was functionally the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire in the West. So we end up with all these barbarian tribes. The Hun threat disappears, and then these tribes develop their own little kingdoms. And so you have all these different kingdoms, and there's no longer a centralized power in the West. That power is dismantled. Meanwhile, back in the East, in Constantinople, the emperor remains in power. It remains a unified political system under him. So in the West... You have this decentralization because these barbarian tribes are splitting up the Roman Empire. In the East, you've still got a unified political system. The point here is that we have this major political and geographic world division that is developing between West and East. The West is decentralized and the East is centralized. The Roman Empire is strong in the East and it is weak in the West due to these invasions from the barbarians. This is the political division. There's another division, division within the church of the 5th century. So what's going on with the church at this point? Last week we talked about the big theological debate of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And the main question was how the humanity and divinity of Jesus work together. That's the Council of Chalcedon. So the bishops and pastors of Antioch, or the pastors of Antioch, and Alexandria begin to go at it and they meet at Chalcedon to reconcile their differences on this question. However, the solution doesn't actually come from either of them. Instead, it comes from Leo, the bishop in Rome, or the pastor in Rome, the bishop there. Leo sends a letter that eventually is adopted as the answer to this question. And so the question of Christology, Christology just means the study of Christ, ology, study, Christology, study of Christ, so the big issue was Christology, and the question of Christology is settled in the West. Yet that question continues on in the East, because the East didn't settle that question. The West did. The Pope and Bishop, or the Pope or Bishop in Rome, settled it. But the East, they still were working on it. So the point is that you think of the you got to think of the big theological picture here. The bishops in the East are still focused on the nature of Jesus Christ. They're still focused on that question. How does the humanity and the divinity of Christ work together? However, in the West, they've settled that question and they begin inquiring to the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation. So this distinction is important. In the West, the question becomes all about Augustine and the nature of salvation. And so we understand the nature of salvation largely because of his application of the Bible to the question of how one can be saved. That's where we begin to understand our, our, the application of the Bible to the question of how one can be saved. It's from Augustine. So then you get this theological division within the church. Augustine versus Pelagius. So think back to last week. Does anyone remember who Pelagius was? Anybody? This is a dialogue. Pelagius. Who was Pelagius? I'm assuming he covered Pelagius. Give me a head nod if he did cover Pelagius last week. Lane? Okay. Yeah, so who was Pelagius, though? 
More about Pelagius. That's Pelagius' thought. Anything about him at all? We didn't cover him at all. Gotcha. He didn't go in much. Yeah, okay. Totally fine. So Pelagius is a British monk. He's a forerunner to Arminianism, or what we know today as Arminianism. He was born in 354, the same time that Augustine is born, which is interesting. He and Augustine have a big debate. Pelagius argues that when it comes to the nature of salvation, we are not born with a sinful nature. This is Pelagius and what Pelagius is arguing. He's arguing that we are not born with a sinful nature. Sin is something that we learn. It's a habit that we pick up. We're not, in our nature, evil and prone to sin. Sin is a learned habit. Therefore, we all need to be saved by the law of God. So just give us the rules because we can learn them and we can follow them. That's Pelagius. That's his thought. So on the other side, you've got Augustine, born in 354 in North Africa. Augustine recognizes that Pelagius is off track. He's off his rocker. And so Augustine looks to Scripture to explain sin and humanity. He goes to passages like Romans 3, where no one does good. As a matter of fact, Romans 3, Paul is going to be quoting from Psalm 53. You're going to see this this morning with John's passage, preaching in Psalm 53. No one does good. Augustine also goes to passages like Matthew 15, verse 19, that evil comes out of the heart. And then John 8, 34, that we're all slaves to sin. So Augustine recognizes that we are, by our very nature, sinful. This is not something that we can change. It's not a habit. This is not an addiction that we can break through a seven-step process. This is not just kind of turning over a new leaf, as we often hear in our culture today. Augustine gets at something deeper. It requires more than the law. It requires the sacrifice of Christ. So if Pelagius is right, then Jesus' death on the cross is in vain because all he needs to do is just to teach us the law. Because if we're inherently good, then we can just do the law. Well, according to Pelagius, he didn't need to die in our place. In 431 at the Council of Ephesus, Pelagianism is rightly condemned as heresy. Though the West rightly condemns Pelagianism, moving forward, they actually adopt it in practice. Though they say one thing, they begin practicing it in a couple of different ways, which we're going to to see here in a minute. And what develops out of this is what is known as semi-Pelagianism. So a semi-Pelagianism, or a semi-Pelagian understanding of salvation is not saying that we're born good. So they they wouldn't say that along with Pelagius. It's not saying that we're born good and that we can learn and that we learn to sin. Rather, semi-Pelagianism says that we human beings take the first step towards God. We take the first step towards God. It holds that we take that step, and then God responds with His grace. Grace that's earned by what we do. That is a semi-Pelagian understanding of salvation. Augustine goes at this. Augustine would argue precisely the opposite. He rightly believed that we cannot take that step. After all, we are dead in our sin. God, in His grace, has to call us to Himself. God first loved us, not us first loving God. That's the difference. There is indeed a response 
that's called for on our part. We need to repent and trust in Christ. But in all of that, it is the agency of God initiating and driving that. It is not us. We don't have it in our nature to do that. So that's why we need the help of God to draw us to himself. So although semi-Pelagianism is condemned at the Synod of Orange in 529 in the East, in the East and in the West, it continues to be practiced, even though the West is condemning it and the East is condoning it, or they are approving of it. So what were some of the main why were these theological divisions important? Why was Augustine's uh, division with or his argument against Pelagianism and that whole debate. Why are these debates important in the early church? Nobody. Why would a theological debate like this be important? It can be a simple answer. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to have a boundary between what is orthodox and what is not, right? What is according with Scripture and what is not. What else? What are some other reasons why theological debates like this are important? Other reasons why these would be important. Anybody? So what happens if uh, they don't have these debates? What happens if these debates don't happen and we don't end up having these councils that meet to try to come up with the boundaries of what is orthodox or what is sound doctrine uh, according to the Bible within the church, the church of practice throughout history? What happens if we don't have these things? Simple answers here. Yeah, what, what is called syncretism. That's what that's called. Okay. Where you take different religions or different ideas and you begin to combine them all into one. That's what that means. Just a fancy word for that. Okay. That can happen. And you begin, to fall, you begin to just kind of divert and just go away and go off on this trajectory away from Scripture. That's why these are important. I mean, Paul tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus 2.1. 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself, that is your life, your practice, and on the teaching, on the teaching of the Word. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort and complete, with complete patience and teaching. So what we see is we need the word before us. It is right to be able to divide over the word. To divide whether someone is going to be uh, hold to a heretical stance on the word of God. So it's right to be able to divide over things that are pro- of primary importance according to the word of God, what we know. Is right. However, there are points, as we'll see by the end of this class, there are points of division that are fruitless and it should not be happening. We'll see that by the end of the class. 
So moving on to the 6th century. I think a fun way for us to be able to compare the East and the West in the 6th century is to look at two important figures. In the East, you have Justinian. In the West, you've got Gregory. So let's start in the East with Justinian. He becomes emperor in 527. He's in Constantinople and starts a period of political restoration. And in doing so, he argues for Caesaropapism. Fancy word. You can probably parse it out. Which says that the emperor has ultimate authority over both the church and the state. Caesar, emperor, papism over the church. So he is now the head ruler over both, not only the state as the emperor, but also the church. Caesar or papism. The pope is ruled by Caesar, which is just the old title for emperor. Caesar is just another title, the older title for emperors. And so the state rules the church. The point is that in the east, things are centralized in terms of power. There is order in place, but on the horizon, there ends up being a threat by the 7th century. Can anybody guess what comes along in the 7th century that may end up being a threat to that power? Anybody? What started, what major religion started in the 7th century? There you go. Islam. Here comes Islam. So Justinian dies in 565, and Muhammad is born just five years later, in 570. So around the age of 40, Muhammad re uh, retreats to a cave to meditate. While meditating, he claims to receive a new revelation from God, which he writes down in the Quran. He gathers a band of followers around him at Mecca, and then the authorities, they don't like this, because this is monotheism, worship of one God. Muhammad is pushing monotheism. So understand, the Arabian Peninsula at this time is polytheistic. They worship many gods. Each tribe has its own god. The political structure is disunified. It's tribal. So the authorities essentially tell Muhammad to get out of town. Muhammad flees to Medina. He gathers a whole lot of followers there. He returns to Mecca in 630 with a huge army and conquers the city. From there, he spreads out, conquering most of the Arab world within 10 years. He and his followers take Syria, Palestine, and large parts of Asia. Within a hundred years, they conquered Egypt, the rest of North Africa, southern France, parts of Spain, and then they're finally laying siege to Constantinople, which is the capital of the Roman Empire. And the authority of the Roman Empire begins to disintegrate. It begins to diminish. In the West, it's the exact opposite. The guy in charge isn't the emperor, but rather the pope or the bishop in Rome. This is what is meant by papal monarchy. The pope ruling over what will become Western Europe. Papal monarchy. One authority, the pope. In the east, there's one authority, and that is Caesar. In the west, it is the pope. During this time period, the Western Empire is divided into kingdoms. The Ostrogoths are in Italy. So you've got a, uh, I think on a second handout right there, you've got a map. That map will begin to lay out for you where all these different barbarian tribes that I'm talking about with these weird names, Ostrogoths and Visigoths and Franks and Lombards and all of these, that will lay out for you where they dwell, where they're living, where they're at during this time. So you've got the Ostrogoths in Italy, the Visigoths in Spain, the Angles and Saxons, which would end up becoming the Anglo-Saxons up in Britain, in the British Isles, and then you got the Franks uh, in Gaul, which is modern-day France. 
So these tribes are wanting to create, so we're in the West still right here. Well, these, these tribes, they're wanting to create their own kingdom. So they're split up right now, but they're wanting to create their own kingdom. They're wanting to be unified. And there's a lot of different, a lot of different kingdoms, a lot of different kingdoms. And so there's a lot of disorder within these kingdoms. I mean, you can imagine. All these different kingdoms, there's a ton of disorder. They want to be unified. And they want to come together. So who do they look to? None other than the Pope in Rome himself. So the tribes needed someone to provide order. They needed protection. They needed food distribution. They needed somebody to write treaties for them. And so they look to the Bishop of Rome himself. So this is how the Bishop of Rome would gain so much political power and authority during this time. Barbarian tribes are wanting to combine and be unified, so they look to the bishop in Rome. This is how he begins to collect power and authority. That's important for what we'll learn by the end of this. So bishops throughout the Western Empire begin to look to Rome as their source of authority. This is the exact opposite of what we see in the East. In the East, you've got all these different bishops at key cities like Alexandria and Antioch. You've got these different key bishops that are kind of having authority over different parts of the East. And so the embodiment of the papal monarchy in the West during this period is Pope Gregory the Great. Gregory did describe, I'm sorry, Gregory did subscribe to the idea of the Pope having a special authority. But Gregory was not abusive of that authority. That wouldn't come until after Gregory. He was heavily missions-minded. He did not display, or he didn't, he didn't display a lot of pomp and circumstance and ceremony as other popes did after him. He aspired to live simply. He mourned the loss of time in prayer. And he was, he was concerned with pastoral ministry and how to do it well. As we'll see later, Gregory is also concerned with making the idea of grace visible to the common, biblically illiterate man. Making the idea of grace visible to the common, biblically illiterate, which was a vast majority of the empire during that time. He wants to make grace visible to all the people within the empire. So how does this disordered civilization in the West impact what's going on with the church in the West? I want to look at two things. Number one, monasticism, and number two, invisible grace, or really visible grace. All right, so how did these things impact the church in the West? Starting out with monasticism. So when I say monasticism, just think monks, nuns in a monastery. That's what we're talking about. The first monastic movement was centered in Egypt in the early 300s. Many people fled into the wilderness after reading Athanasius' biography of St. Anthony, a rich young man who sold everything he had to become a monk. So lots of monks flocked to Egypt in Palestine on an ascetic, that means an intense, self-depriving behavior. That's what ascetic means, self-deprivation. So they, they go on this kind of ascetic quest for holiness. To give you an extreme example, Simeon, the stylite, lived for 40 years on a platform atop a 50-foot high pillar. Think about that. 40 years on a platform atop a 50-foot high pillar. 
What that has to do with anything, I don't know. And what a waste of 40 years. But that's what he did. The monastic movement in the West picks up steam during the 6th century. One particular monk, St. Benedict of Nursia, writes a handbook for how to be a monk and have a monastic order or have a monastic society. You begin to see monasteries take place. Well, Pope Gregory the Great endorses the handbook, and you can imagine what monasticism does. It flourishes. The monastic movement's goal is to purify and to remove oneself from the contamination of the surrounding material world into a kind of sanctuary where one could focus on self-denial and the pursuit of God. That's its purpose. There is no private ownership of this. That's its purpose. Self-denial and pursuit of God. But why does this, out of all things, pick up steam at this point in history? There are a couple of reasons why. Number one, there's no more persecution at this time. Christianity by then was an endorsed religion by the, by the Roman Empire. The monastery life is, one, is just one way to persecute yourself. You're not being persecuted. They think, in order to become more holy, we need to suffer a little bit. Why not persecute ourselves and go into monastic life? So you can test your devotion to Christ because no one else will do it for you. So you might as well do it for yourself. Number two, the popular teaching of the day was just to deny the material world to purify your soul. This teaching was popular during its day. Number three, the world. Consider what this world looks like. You have barbarian tribes, disorder, and chaos. This is a far cry from a perfect world. So it's not a bad time to get out into the boonies and join a monastery. The first impact of this disordered civilization on the Western church is to, remove, is to remove and purify oneself from it. That's monasticism. The second thing is visible grace. So think about the shape of society at this period in time. We're dealing with context. What are people like during this time? Total disorder. Dirt farming. People aren't reading or writing or going to school. They're not studying scriptures. They're not studying the scriptures for themselves. So the church, and Gregory in particular, make an effort to communicate. They want to communicate Christianity to people. How do they do that? Since people are not reading or understanding theological concepts, it's an uneducated disorder. How are they going to communicate Christianity to others? Anybody guess? How would they do that? Any guesses? All right, let's see. The solution is to make it more visible. So Gregory makes tours around Europe so that people can see the Pope. And hopefully that draws a connection with the people and Christianity the people in the church. Other churchmen begin to provide more ways for people to see grace. And this begins right here, the development of a number of the sacraments and practices of the Roman Catholic Church as we know it today. Number one, the Lord's Supper and the doctrine of transubstantiation. Another big word that we'll explain. Transubstantiation is just the bread and the wine actually becoming the body and blood of Christ. So when you take... 
the bread and the wine, at communion, or what they would say is the Eucharist, you are eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ, consuming Christ in the Lord's Supper. This is a visible manifestation of God's grace being imparted into your life. You do this, and God's grace is imparted into your life. Number two, the veneration or worship of Mary and other saints, the church says, instead of worshiping that pagan god, why don't you try directing your worship towards this saint or that relic? Think about you going over to the Clinton house on Clinton Avenue over here. And you go in there and you see, oh my goodness, this is the Clintons' bedroom. This is where they slept. This is amazing. You begin to worship a relic of the Clintons. Now that doesn't really make much sense. Anyways. But imagine, there's so-and-so's cane, there's so-and-so's hat, there's so-and-so's little locket or whatever it is, and it's got some kind of power to it. You can pray to it, you can touch it, and somehow it will impart God's grace to you. So we begin to see the veneration of Mary and other saints. Number three, penance, penance. People can tell the bishop about their sins and he can impart forgiveness to them from God. They're participating in having their sins forgiven. They're able to see someone forgive them of their sins. Rather than looking back to the cross, to Jesus who is the true high priest who forgave their sins once for all time, they want to be able to see this. They want to see it. So you can imagine this dark road that they begin to travel down. You can imagine the dark road of grace being made more visible and where that leads you. After all, Paul does tell us that we walk by faith and not by sight. Interesting. And this would lead to idolatry and a wrong understanding of salvation. Rather than salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, participating in these sacraments become a way for you to be able to earn God's grace. So all of these things, what would this lead up to? What would this lead to? What we'll talk about here in two weeks. A little louder, There you go. The Protestant Reformation. Where God's volcano would erupt. We'll learn about who God's volcano was in two weeks. So why is this notion of visible grace dangerous? Why is it, how can this be dangerous? Why is it dangerous? Exactly right. Yeah. Can lead to idolatry. Yeah. What else? Leads to go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Becomes man centered. Anything else? So we see a shift in the doctrine of salvation and idolatry. All right, fast forward to the ninth century. Ninth century, east versus west. So by this point in time, the Muslims are at the gates of Constantinople and the Eastern Empire is losing a lot of its power, a lot of its influence in the land to Muslim invasions. At the same time, 
they're sending missionaries into Slavic lands, kind of like Russia and that area. And you begin to see this missionary movement, this missionary effort that takes place. So as the East, this is interesting, as the East is decentralizing because of Muslim invasions, they're losing power and order, the West is actually consolidating. Remember those barbarian tribes? We've got to be unified. We need somebody to write treaties, provide food, all these other things. They are beginning to consolidate. So we have all these kingdoms, and they're consolidating power. Well, over time, the king of the Franks and the Pope are working together to protect and reinforce one another's authority. They want to keep that authority and that power. So they've got to have an allegiance. They've got this give-and-take relationship. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And so the Pope, Pope Leo III, runs into problems with these nobles in Rome who are going to beat the tar out of him. So what does he do? He seeks refuge with Charles I. That is the king of the Franks. So Charles then comes to Rome. And apparently, Charles comes to Rome and attends Mass, and all of a sudden, Leo III crowns him emperor of Rome. Think about that. I come to Rome just to see my buddy. He's in trouble. He's about to get the tar beat out of him. And then, bam, I get a crown slapped on me, and I'm the emperor of Rome now. Anybody know who this was? Charlemagne the Great. That's right. Charlemagne the Great. This is the beginning of Europe as we know it today. So what's going on here? Number one, political division. We have the church and the state butting heads. You've got the king, you've got the pope. The pope plays a card on the king and suddenly he says, I've got the authority to crown you emperor. Don't forget the pope crowned Charlemagne the Great, emperor. The Pope is trying to get authority back for the church from the state. But the moral of the story is that we have this centralization of power that's taking place in beginning, and it's the beginning of Western Europe as we know it. This European identity is developing. This is what's happening in the East and the West. But what about the issue of papal division? Think about the church's political structure right here. In the east, there are lots of bishops. You have a bishop in Jerusalem, a bishop in Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople. No one bishop has more authority and power than another bishop. They work together as a council. In the west, it's the exact opposite. There is one bishop in Rome who claims to be the pope. He claims to have sole authority because he holds the seat that was Peter's, who was the bishop of Rome and which is passed on to the current bishop of Rome, which is him. So he claims to have total authority over the church. So there's one bishop in the West. You've got all these other bishops in the East fighting it out. Number two, theological division. Notice the theological division. The big picture is that in the West, they're really focused on Augustine in condemning semi-Pelagianism, even though in practice they are practicing it. The nature of salvation, and how are they practicing it? How are they practicing, practice, practicing this understanding of semi-Pelagian in the West? What did we just learn about? Exactly. Visible grace, monastic life, thinking you can earn grace from God. They, Even though they'll say one thing, they are completely doing a different thing. So, the nature of salvation is understood as moving from a state of sin to a state of grace. To a state of grace. This is in the West. There's a point of conversion in which you move from being condemned in sin 
to the grace of God where you lead a life of repentance. There's a, there's a legal shift right here from guilty to not guilty. That's the theological understanding in the West. In the East, they're looking more to origin as their adopted church father. And they're openly semi-Pelagian. They don't even care. They're not fighting over that. They're still worrying about the nature of the humanity and divinity of Christ. What in the world? How do those things, uh, how do those things mesh? Salvation in the East is more of a process of deification where humanity blends with divinity. So you work to that point throughout your life. That's the theological division in the East and the West. What about a division of authority? Theology in the West is proposition, truth, true and false statements, true and false de- declarations. It's saying these things are true, those things are false. Scripture and creeds are authoritative. In the East, theology is grounded in liturgy and rituals, going through various ritual, rituals. The authority is in the, is in the liturgy, in the tradition in the practices of the church. In the East, it's in the practices of the church. Tradition. In the West, true and false statements coming from Scripture itself and from creeds that were just uh, set up that you learned about last week in those councils. So the point is that the East and West have gone in two completely different directions. They've gone in different directions politically. They've gone in different directions Culturally, ecclesiologically, that just means study of the church. Ecclesia just means in Greek, church. That just means ecclesiology just means study of the church. So they differ on how those things are set up. Theologically, they're going in different directions. So what is it then that causes the final break between the East and the West? How do we end up today with the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church? Anybody want to give it a guess before I start teaching? Any guesses? All right. So there are many controversies over the centuries that added pressure to the eventual splitting of the church into East and West, such as arguments over the date of Easter, disagreements on Christology, which I said a minute ago is the study of Christ, the East unhappiness with papal claims, to universal authority over the churches, which was the underlying political issue. That papal claim that I've got all the authority, I'm the one telling you what to do. The East does not like that very much. And the situation we're about to talk about right here is this is going to be the final kind of tipping point for them because of that abuse of authority. And so the greatest force that drove the two apart, finally, was the filioque. The word is Latin in meaning and the sun. Filioque should be on there. It's just Latin for meaning and the sun. So how does this one little word or phrase in English divide all of Christianity into the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church? Well, think back to the Council of Nicaea. The major question was how the persons of the Trinity interact with one another. Arius, if you remember from last week when looking at that council, Arius argued that Jesus was created. There was a time when the Son was not, meaning that he was not eternally existing. Right? There was a time that he did not exist and he came into creation. That's what Arius would argue. The Nicene Creed was formulated as a way to recognize that Arius was wrong, that Jesus is eternal 
and immutable. What is the word immutable from those in the knowing God study? What is that word? What does it mean? Louder. Unchanging, unchangeable. All right? Jesus is eternal and immutable. He is unchanging. He is one with the Father. So the Trinity is one essence or being, but three persons. In the West, they add a phrase to the end of the Nicene Creed that says, and you've got it there in your handout, they add this phrase in the West, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So the question is whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son in addition to the Father. In the West, Augustine had recognized that the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. So in that sense, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And in John 15, 26, Jesus says he will send the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. He's talking about Pentecost right here. Jesus will send the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. And this, by analogy, means the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now you may be thinking, oh my goodness. How ridiculous. I would agree. Well, the East gets really upset about this, right? Because the Western church makes this, they make the change. They don't even consult the East. They're like, well, we're making the change because it's right and it's got to be in there, right? They're saying, hold up. There you go again. You've got one pope and you're just doing whatever you want and you end up up changing the creed without even consulting us. We've got all of these bishops over here And you tell us that we can't change the creeds. Only the Pope in Rome, only the bishop in Rome can change the creeds. Well, the West replies, this is true and accurate. The phrase needs to be in there. So they go back and forth, and ultimately in 1054 AD, the Bishop of Constantinople declares the Bishop of Rome a heretic. Well, long story short, both bishops end up excommunicating one another. How that's possible, I don't know. But they both go at it, and they're excommunicating and firing excommunicados, if you watch John Wick. They're firing excommunications at one another, and they say, that other church is heretical, and we cannot be in communion with them. That, friends, is how you end up with the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church today. So just to conclude all this, the church, especially in the East, following this, takes some bad turns during this time. In the West, political chaos produces a role for the church that went beyond being God's appointed role of making disciples. In both cases, we see a departure from God's word that calls what the church church is to be. We see a departure from the word of God calling the church to be what it's to be, and yet the West is denouncing this. This is a false trajectory, and we'll see next week. It sadly continues throughout the high Middle Ages. So I want us to take a little bit of time right here and just think about some practical lessons that you've learned from this lesson. 